The greatest deception men suffer is from their own opinions. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Marriage is like putting your hand into a bag of snakes in the hope of pulling out an eel. Uh, wait, 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 hold, <clears throat> hold on, maybe not that one. Uh, da, 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 da. Ah, yes, this one's much better, okay. <clears throat> For verily, great love springs from great knowledge of the beloved object. And if you little know it, you will be able to love it only little or not at all. Imagine dropping one of these quotes at your table. Now, imagine how much the rest of your buddies would hate you for dropping one of these quotes after slaying a monster. Then you tell them it's a quote by Leonardo da Vinci, only for them to still hate you. All that and more on today's episode of Heroes and History. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 1 of Heroes in History, where we bring history to your character sheet. In this episode, we'll be looking at the original Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci, and see how we can build him as an artificer for your D&D campaign. It's episode 1 of Heroes in History. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode one of Heroes and History. My name is Punk Rock AJ, and guys, I'm so happy to be here today presenting our very first build. As a reminder for this season, we'll be building each of our builds in alphabetical order of the classes themselves. As such, our first build will be an Artificer. So first, a quick background on the Artificer, as this was a class I was not super familiar with when it was first introduced to me in 5e. The Artificer first appeared in 1996 in the second edition of D&D, and it was tied heavily to the Eberron setting, which is a much more mechanized setting within the D&D mythos. Uh, think steampunk, so steampunk D&D, which sounds pretty cool. From there, it slowly kept appearing every so often, making appearances in the third and fourth editions until eventually settling into the current fifth edition. Artificers are interesting. They're an intelligence-based magic class, but instead of using wands or other spellcasting focuses, they are instead gadgeteers who infuse their inventions with their magic, often to a devastating effect. In fact, these items are known as an artificer's infusions. At the moment, there are four artificer subclasses. The alchemist, who focuses on creating magical potions and other such elixirs. The artillerist, who essentially has a gun, a D&D like magic gun. The battlesmith, who focuses on making constructs to do their bidding and the armorer, who essentially builds their own sort of steampunk Iron Man suit. Very cool. The figure I've chosen to represent the Artificer is the world-famous polymath Leonardo da Vinci. Born on April 15, 1452, Leonardo di Sir Piero da Vinci was a legendarily skilled painter, engineer, and anatomist who lived at the height of what we would become known as the Italian Renaissance. Some of his most famous works include the Vitruvian Man, the Last Supper, and the Mona Lisa, though there are many more to his name. In fact, many of his notes and paintings are still sought after today and are some of the most expensive artistic pieces ever sold at auction. Bill Gates himself owns the only known surviving copy of Da Vinci's illustrated 72-page-long Codex Lightcaster. And in 2017, 
a Russian billionaire sold a purported painting of da Vinci's The Salvatore Mundi for a record-breaking $450 million, though the current owner of that painting should most certainly hope that it's indeed a real da Vinci painting, which is to say nothing of the notes da Vinci wrote down which would eventually become useful to modern medical science. Oh, and he also lent his name to a Ninja Turtle. Like, what's the plan, Leonardo? Well, uh, we, we could cut to the left. Or, or, or maybe to the right. No, I can't decide. Thanks, you've been a huge help. Leonardo da Vinci was an incredible man, and he is most certainly worthy of bringing to your game night in some fashion. But in order to play Leonardo da Vinci, it's important to understand Leonardo da Vinci, and in order to understand Leonardo da Vinci, you have to understand Renaissance Italy. First of all, I need to address the elephant of the rocks, as it were. While the Renaissance is still often taught as a unique and pivotal moment in the course of European history, the term itself, Renaissance, has fallen under no small amount of historical scrutiny. Renaissance is a French word meaning rebirth, and it was first coined in 1855 by the French historian Jules Michelet in his epic 19-volume text, L'Histoire de France. I am greatly simplifying the argument here, but it boils down to this. Michelet was disgusted with what we refer to as the medieval period, and he saw it as a dark age. In contrast, he viewed the events of what happened in what would become known as Renaissance Italy as a rekindling of the fire, bringing back the light of knowledge to the world through the ideal of humanism. When Renaissance figures looked back to their ancient Roman past and saw that they could combine the religious with the pagan. However, this is seen as unfair to the medieval period, which saw a handful of smaller renaissances throughout its being. There is one in the 12th century, and one under the reign and stewardship of Emperor Charlemagne, the Carolingian Renaissance, around the year 800 AD, which is my personal favorite era of history. This in turn leads to the argument of periodization, that history itself can be easily compartmentalized in such a neat and tidy fashion, but that's an argument for another day. For the purposes of this podcast, we are going to assume that Renaissance Italy was its own unique epoch of history, because it was. It's my personal belief that the art and majesty that flourished here in the late 14th to late 15th centuries constitutes a powerful identity that belongs entirely to itself. Additionally, the figure I've chosen for the next episode, the Barbarian build, inexplicably makes for an interesting comparison as he was born somewhat around this time period, and no spoilers. Let's begin by talking about Italy itself. Now, don't worry, we aren't going to go over the entire history of Italy. Here's the essential information you need to know. Italy constitutes a land that is almost entirely bordered by the warm Mediterranean Sea, bordering France to the north. In ancient times, it was the location of the formidable Roman Empire, whose shadow still looms over European history and culture at large, especially for the country of Italy itself. Rome was a war-based economy, but from that war economy, it was able to produce great pieces of art that captured the minds of later generations. The western half of the empire eventually fell, but the eastern half became what we now refer to as the Byzantine Empire, though the people who lived there never referred to themselves by that name, instead calling themselves Romoi, the Greek word for Roman. While there were several points in history when the eastern half attempted to reclaim the western half of the empire, most famously under the rule of Emperor Justinian, probably a build in his own right, the western half never returned and in fact became several smaller kingdoms. During the time of the Renaissance, the most notable and powerful, ki powerful kingdoms were Florence, Venice, and Milan, 
all of which are in the northern half of Italy, with the actual city of Rome being much further south. In fact, the country we now refer to as Italy was only recognized by the United States in 1861, but let's now return to the past again, to the year 1452, the year of da Vinci's birth. Two years before he is born, in the year 1450, the Gutenberg printing press becomes commercially available in Europe, allowing for the widespread creation of books to be sent to all sectors of Europe. In just one year after he is born, in 1453, the Byzantine Empire will be conquered by Mehmed the Conqueror, Constantinople will become Istanbul, and will then fully become part of the Ottoman Empire. And in turn, all of this will soon become part of the time period we now refer to as the High Renaissance. Now, we can talk about Leonardo da Vinci. To understand the life of Leonardo da Vinci, we have to understand two things about him. First, the man himself. Leonardo was born an illegitimate son, a bastard, between a humble mother and an upper-class father who was a legal notary. In fact, da Vinci is not technically his surname, for he has none. Da Vinci refers to the province of Florence where he was born. He received no formal education when he was a child, though he was known as being a very bright young kid. Still, as an illegitimate son, he was barred from certain careers. Eventually, he went to live with his father at the city of Florence, where he was taught how to read and given a bit more of a formal education. Despite his youth, he was seen as a talented young artist, and, by the time he was 20, he went to study with the great artist of the time, Verrocchio. After more training, training, he became his own accomplished artist and began taking commissions around the time of his early 20s. This leads to the second aspect about understanding da Vinci's life, which is that, career-wise, he is constantly bouncing around northern Italy, so much so that da Vinci left many unfinished pieces in his lifetime in different parts of the country. Remember how I mentioned that Italy was a collection of smaller kingdoms at this time? Well, each of these kingdoms was ruled more or less by several powerful, powerful families, most famously the de' Medici family. Who were the Medicis? Originating in the rolling hills of medieval Tuscany and beginning as healers, Medici means doctor, they were a family of skilled bankers and merchants, so skilled in fact that they eventually became the de facto rulers of Renaissance Italy. The consolidation of this power truly settled with Cosimo the Elder, who lived from 1389 to 1464, who helped form the Signoria, the government of Renaissance Florence. More than just a shrewd banker and politician, Cosimo was a renowned patron of the arts, traits that were eventually passed on to his grandson, Lorenzo de' Medici, Lorenzo il Magnifico, or Lorenzo the Magnificent. From 1469 until his death in 1492, Lorenzo and his family were the oligarchic rulers of Florence, and Lorenzo himself sponsored the works of da Vinci, but also his contemporaries Michelangelo and Sandro Botticelli. But other powerful families existed at this time, including the Sforzas and the infamous Borgias. At various points in his life, da Vinci would be employed by all three. And while I cannot attest to their quality, currently on Netflix, you can find separate shows about two of these families, those shows being The Borgias and Medici the Magnificent. I guess my apologies to the Sforzas. <laughs> to go over an entire life history of da Vinci is beyond the scope of this podcast, though there are many great history podcasts that have tackled the subject to a much higher degree than I would ever be able to. Instead, 
let's real quickly go over just some of the quirks of Leonardo da Vinci. In short, a breakdown of the highlights. While we don't exactly know what he looks like as a young man, we do have a picture of what he looks like as an old man. The self-made Portrait of a Man in Red Chalk shows the definition of an old, venerable sage, complete with bald head, big beard, and bushy eyebrows. This portrait, though, may be inspired by da Vinci's image of how he viewed himself in the traditional Greek philosopher appearance. He looks much older than the 50 he would have been at the time. He was a vegetarian, an apparently talented musician, and, perhaps most interestingly, he was ambidextrous. This is worth mentioning because da Vinci created his own mirror script, as he could write right to left and left to right simultaneously. The reasoning behind this is unclear. He may have been wanting to hide away his notes in a sort of complex code, or he may have been trying to give the ink on the paper more time to dry. He was arrested on charges of sodomy when he was about 20, though the charges were quickly dropped. He was probably gay, but the entirety of his personal life is unclear. Leonardo da Vinci was not known to have any romantic relations with a woman. In his later years, he developed a deep friendship with one of his prized students, the young Francesco Melzi. The friendship was sincere and at times quite cheeky. Da Vinci apparently pranked his student by creating a dragon from a collection of taxidermied animals, which he then inflated to a monster size. He put this fake dragon in his workshop, and when his student came in and turned around the corner, this like monster was there in front of him, and he went, ah! So <laughs> this is apparently a prank he pulled on others as well. All that said, there is no hard evidence to say that their relationship was more than platonic. Melzi himself went on to marry and father eight children. We'll return to Melzi in just a moment. Leonardo da Vinci was supremely talented in almost any field or subject that he set his mind and heart to. As an anatomist, he sought to learn more about the human body, and as such, was known to have gone grave robbing a very serious crime in his own time. Still, he is credited with some of the first drawings of the human vascular system. As a scientist, he was fascinated with light and how it refracts through substances such as water. Through this fascination with light, he ended up discovering why the sky is blue, essentially sunlight passing through and illuminating minute particles of moisture in the atmosphere. Ostensibly, it could be said that his fascination with the human body and light could stem from his primary career as a painter. But Leonardo da Vinci was also immensely fascinated with birds and how they fly, which segues nicely into da Vinci's career as an engineer. To his name, da Vinci drew up sketches for a flying machine, an early helicopter, a submarine, a parachute, a portable bridge, a machine for grinding convex lenses, and several other military machines. Now, the direct application of these inventions is varied and largely dependent on the invention in question. In 2003, a British documentary called Leonardo's Dream Machines tested some of these machines, and you can find the first episode of this special on YouTube. Suffice to say, the results were mixed. That said, in July of 2000, British skydiver Adrian Nicholas successfully made a drop with a parachute that came directly from one of Leonardo's designs. Very cool. Da Vinci also created a robot. Yes, really. Actually, he was responsible for creating two robots. The first was a German-Italian medieval armor suit filled with an anatomically correct series of pulleys and levers. The robot is said to have been able to walk and raise its visor. He is said to have also created a sort of robotic lion that was somehow able to walk on its own and open its mouth, which was filled with a bunch of lilies. This robotic lion present was presented as a gift to the French king, 
Francois I. Leonardo was working at the court of the French king at the time. Of these, of these two, the automaton knight has been successfully recreated. Now, despite being a purported pacifist, da Vinci has become somewhat infamous for some of his military engineering designs. Many of these were at the behest of Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, and include a giant crossbow and armored car. Neither of which saw any sort of implementation on the Renaissance battlefield. You know, it's, it's the thought that counts. There was also a rather fun moment when Leonardo da Vinci teamed up with Niccolo Machiavelli, the author of The Prince. For those who don't know, The Prince is a treatise, often misunderstood, that teaches how to deceive and destroy your opponents. Anyways, the plan was to steal or destroy the Arno River, and this event does bear mentioning. In short, Machiavelli was an ally of Florence and was seeking to cripple the arch nemesis of Florence, Pisa. The Arno River was a river that flowed through Pisa, and Machiavelli hired da Vinci to destroy this river, which da Vinci attempted to do by building a series of dams and other hydraulic devices to redirect the river. The attempt was a spectacular failure, but the familiarity da Vinci gained by being in the Arno River Valley led to its inclusion in the Mona Lisa. Yes, the river in the background of the Mona Lisa is the same river da Vinci had previously sought to destroy. All of which just goes to show just how much of a well-rounded super genius da Vinci really was. Frankly, the term Renaissance man might be a bit of an understatement. And so Leonardo da Vinci lived an incredible and vastly varied life until his passing at the age of 67 in Amboise, France in May of 1519 from natural causes. Without any heirs, da Vinci would leave his works to his dear Melzi, many of which would go on to have incredible stories of their own. Again, all this is beyond the context of our episode for today. Suffice to say that we are lucky to have as much of his works as we do. For their part, the Mona Lisa and a few other of da Vinci's paintings can be found in the Louvre Museum in Paris, France, and as hinted at earlier, many of his notes are scattered all over the world. In terms of representation in media, the most famous work that involves Leonardo is one where he doesn't even directly appear. I'm of course referencing the Da Vinci Code, a story which says that many hidden clues to some of the world's greatest mysteries can be found in the paintings of Da Vinci, specifically in The Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci also appears as an ally in the famous video game Assassin's Creed II, where he makes gadgets for the main character to help in his missions. But oh, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of representations of Leonardo da Vinci and his artistic pieces, as he's appeared in various other video games, comics, and movies. For the purpose of our episode, though, I'd like to highlight a few that could really help you, the player or DM, conceive of how you might be able to use da Vinci's creations in your campaign. Currently, on YouTube, there's an animated kids movie called Leo Da Vinci, Mission Mona Lisa, where a young Da Vinci teams up with the girl who modeled for the Mona Lisa, I guess? I don't know, looks like it could be kind of fun. Similar to Assassin's Creed 2, there is an old DC Elseworlds story where there is a Florentine Batman who is trained by Da Vinci. That looks like it'd be interesting. Finally, there's the 2006 computer game Rise of Legends, that features the Vinci Army, a playable faction that utilizes weapons and technology based on the designs of Leonardo to make a sort of Vinci punk setting. It's really cool to see. Alright, that's the breakdown of the man. Let's see how we could build him in Dungeons and Dragons. I need your help, Leonardo. Does it work? What? What are you asking? Does it work, Leonardo? Can it really fly? I don't know. It's only a prototype. An idea. It's not ready yet. 
Have you tried it? No. It's too dangerous. To test it, you'd have to leap off a tower. Who would be mad enough to do a thing like that? Leonardo, I think you just found your madman. So, how does she work? Have you ever watched a bird in flight? It's not about being lighter than air. It's about grace and balance. You must use your body's own weight to control your elevation and direction. Good luck, Ezio. Alright, so let's go ahead and begin the build. For level 1, we're going to use the basic stat layout for building this character. Give Leo a 15 for intelligence, obviously. A 14 for wisdom, you have a deep understanding of medicine. A 13 for dexterity, you have amazingly steady hands when it comes to painting, even if you do take your time. A 12 for charisma, you're lively and enjoy the reputation, if not the fame. 10 for constitution, it's slow, but you still live a fruitful life. And an 8 for strength, you're kind of an uber nerd. For extra points, put one in intelligence and the other in dexterity, let's bump it up a bit. Take the guild artisan background while choosing the painter's tools for your proficiency. You get a letter of introduction from your patron, maybe from De Medici. For race, variant human will do, though Tinker or Gnome could also work. You would get a few extra gadgets. Choose Keen Mind as your feat, which gives you a slew of little awareness bonuses and bumps your intelligence to 17. And take Investigation as your extra skill. For weapons, you'll begin with a light crossbow and take a dagger and club as your extra simple weapons. You'll begin with Magical Tinkering, which lets you take a bunch of nifty little effects and the spellcasting feature. For your cantrips, take Mending, which will allow you to repair things you might accidentally break in your workshop, and Prestidigitation, which will give you even more extra little magical effects. For spells, take Featherfall. If your comrades happen to fall off a cliff, probably while testing one of your flying machines, you'll be able to help them float before they hit the ground. And take Cure Wounds. With your advanced medical knowledge, you're already a good medic. At level 2, you get Infusions, the ability to infuse items with your magical powers. Go ahead and take Enhanced Arcane Focus, which lets you put a little extra oomph on attack rolls when someone is holding something like a wand or rod, or maybe with your DM's permission, a paintbrush. Just saying. You can also take Mind Sharpener, which lets you give a pair of robes you or an ally might be wearing the ability to automatically succeed on a concentration check, which could be useful for one of your students. Take Bag of Holding to carry all of your art supplies, and a cup of water breathing to let you explore the marshes and rivers of your homeland. At level 3, grab the Catapult spell, as your studies in Motion Hump give you a nice little offensive spell. You also get the right tool for the job, which helps you magically make the tools you need, but most importantly, you get to become a Battlesmith, which means you get your very own Steel Defender. This robot buddy of yours will be your main way of handling combat, and it levels up with you becoming a fairly formidable adversary by the end of your journey. In terms of appearance, it can be either on two or four legs, neither has any effects on its game statistics. If you choose four, say it looks like Leo's armored car or his mechanical lion. But if you choose the two-leg option, say it can either look like Leo's robot or the Vitruvian man. Huh? Uh, pretty good, huh? You know? <laughs> um, okay, level four. Go ahead and take the observant feat. You get plus one to your intelligence, you can read lips, but you also get plus 5 to your passive wisdom and investigation skill. Already, you are an amazingly aware person and are pretty good at solving mysteries and puzzles. At level 5, your proficiency bonus increases. 
go ahead and give yourself the second level enhance ability spell, but you also get the next Battlesmith specialist feature, extra attack. Booyah! For level 6, you get tool expertise, which doubles your proficiency bonus for ability checks that require you to use a tool that you are proficient with. You also get two more infusions. Replace your cap of water breathing with cloak of the manta ray, as well as repeating shot, to give your light crossbow a bit more usefulness in battle. Level 7 is a bit uneventful. All you get is Flash of Genius, so that's still pretty dang good. You get to add your intelligence modifier to a friend who makes an ability check or saving throw. At level 8, you get an ability score improvement. Go ahead and put one point in your intelligence score to max it out. And for the other points, hmm. Well, let's go ahead and put it in your charisma. Let's try to beef that up a bit. Level 9. Level 9 is fine. Your proficiency bonus increases, and you get a third level spell. Go ahead and make it fly to fully realize your dream. You also get another specialist feature. Your still defender gets the arcane jolt for a bit of extra electrical nastiness. Level 10, we're halfway there, peeps. You become a magic item adept and get two more infusions. Take the ring of mind shielding so that no pesky mystics can read your mind unless you want them to. <laughs> but on Tish, the mystic class was recently banned, I, if I'm remembering that correctly, yep. <laughs> so that's not happening. Uh, also, take the lantern of revealing. You often had to work and travel by lantern light, but this lantern also reveals invisible creatures or objects. Level 11 is easy, all you get is spell storing items, so you can save a bit of your magic for later. Level 12 is another ability score improvement. Woo! Yeah, go ahead and put both in your charisma to bring it up to 15, making your modifier plus 2 now. At level 13, you get nothing. Well, that's not entirely true. Your proficiency bonus is now plus 5, and you get a 4th level spell. Go ahead and take Mordenkainen's Private Sanctum to give you extra security when working on your next masterpiece. Level 14 makes you a magic item savant, which in turn makes you better at handling magic items. You also get two more infusions. Take the Ring of Protection and Amulet of Health for more AC and health respectively. Level 15 is only okay for you, but pretty good for your robot buddy as they become an improved defender. Level 16 is ability score improvement time. Put both of them into wisdom to make it a more respectable 16 for a plus 3 modifier. Level 17 is nothing to get too excited for, or is it? You don't get any new special features, but your proficiency bonus is now plus 6, and you get a new 5th level spell. Take the Creation spell, which allows you to take Wisps of Shadowfell and make non-living vegetable matter, like rope and wood. Taking the darkness of shadow and turn it into something useful to mankind, like a bridge, to maybe finally go back and steal that darn Arno River. At level 18, you become a magic item master, which means you can now tune up to six items at a time. Sick. You get two more infusions. Take Eyes of the Eagle for the ability to see minute details from extreme distances and the Ring of Free Action to protect you from being paralyzed by magic. Level 19, and it's time for more ability score improvements. Put one point in dexterity to take it to 16 and make your modifier plus three. For the other one, put it in Constitution, which also retroactively raises your overall health. For level 20, we're going to prove how much of the soul of an artist you really have inside. By taking the first level of Bard. Yep, we're taking a quick dip in the shallow end of the multi-class pool. At the first level of Bard, you'll get an instrument. Go ahead and take the flute. You get the Bardic Inspiration ability to give your friends some extra encouragement with an inspiring little song. 
For your new trained skill, actually give yourself athletics. You're moving constantly around in your workshop. You're actually quite spry, and this will give you a bit more extra usefulness on the battlefield itself. For your two new cantrips, take Blade Ward for another way to defend yourself and Vicious Mockery to yell at your lazy students. I would have been one of those myself. <laughs> for your first level bard spells, take Heroism to prevent your allies from getting frightened. Identify to understand the art of your contemporaries. Illusory script to help create hidden messages. And Unseen Servant for even more help around your workshop. Alright, let's give a quick analysis for how Leonardo da Vinci can be played in your D&D campaign. Well, right away Leonardo is extremely smart and with that comes all the in-game benefits of being so freaking brainy. He has an exceptionally high investigation score, and in addition to infusions like Lantern of Revealing and Eyes of the Eagle, essentially nothing will be able to hide from him, whether it be an enemy or a riddle. Not to mention he has a few different ways of protecting his mind, the most prominent being Ring of Protection. While having an only okay base charisma, he is able to inspire others and imbue them with strength and other bonuses, thus making him a great team player. He can help out as a healer if he needs to as well, Finally, with the investments we made in Fly and Cloak of the Manta Ray, he's good in the air and water, thus making him fairly adaptable to different scenarios. In terms of weaknesses, he's not much of a damage dealer, pretty much reliant entirely on a steel defender to bring on the offense. In terms of vitality, with the Amulet of Health, he's actually not too bad, but I still wouldn't call him any kind of frontline fighter. And really, he's not an ideal spellcaster either, which is a distinction worth mentioning. The quick little nibble we took in Bard was fun, but if you plan on power building this character, just stick to Artificer level 20. In short, Leonardo is a utility and versatility based battlesmith, which actually is a bit unusual. If you want to be a brainy gadgeteer, giving Ezio the tools he needs to complete his missions, Da Vinci's your guy. Now, let's quickly talk about how you can use the Renaissance setting within your game. Really, Renaissance Florence itself, with its competing guilds and vibrant architecture and cultural festivals such as Carnival, is a fantasy setting unto itself. Play up the bankers, the merchants, and the blending of art, religion, and commerce. That said, I'm really interested in the idea of competing artists, or artists taking different and shifting commissions, at the behest of powerful figures hoping to gain an edge in political favor over each other. I see a lot of plot potential there. So for a quick, for a quick example, you could all be students of a famous artist sent to steal or destroy the work of a rival, or conversely, you could be the students of an artist who must locate a missing portrait or statue. If you really want to play up the fantasy aspects of your take on Renaissance Italy, make your world a Vinci punk setting. Again, I would refer you to the game Rise of Legends. There's an entire aerial unit that flies in Vinci-styled helicopters. It's really cool. For other interesting historical figures, I do want to real quickly mention the incredible Count Federico de Montefeltro, an incredible prince who ruled the Duchy of Urbino. Count Urbino was an incredible man, probably worthy of his own build, but he's a perfect example of a condottieri, a type of Renaissance mercenary. As devoted as this man was to learning and the preservation of knowledge, it's worth noting his mastery of Renaissance warfare, where, essentially, he would have people pay him to not attack them. The PCs of your game could practice or be at the mercy of this style of warfare themselves. Well, he is still very much more rooted in the medieval period, Dante Alighieri, the poet who wrote the Divine Comedy, 
would be fitting in a fantastical Renaissance setting. The PCs could find clues Dante left that hint at an infernal or celestial presence. For another famous writer who is actually from this time, there is of course Niccolo Machiavelli, the writer of The Prince. As misunderstood as this text is, Machiavelli could still serve as a sort of military advisor. I could keep going, but the Renaissance is such an incredible setting, I'll probably have to give it more of an in-depth piece when covering different settings for your campaign, so an extra podcast, stay tuned. Alright folks, that's it for this first build, and thus, this first episode. It's the first episode, and I'm already late. Bleh. Just, just bleh. Still, what I found out about Leonardo da Vinci was just so incredible, and I really wanted to get it right. The Artificer class can be quite complex. It was more complex than I gave it credit for at the start of the <laughs> at the start of doing research for this build. Still, though, I'm very excited about our next build, which is the Barbarian, and yeah, personally, I always preferred to play PCs who were good at hitting things. Anyways, here's the next riddle. <clears throat> If blood and vengeance be your thing, prepare to get batty. Oh, dang. If you have questions and comments, please send them to punkrockhapodcasts at gmail.com. At the moment, I'm still working on getting more of my social media up, including my Patreon, but they are coming. Once again, special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westoff for the incredible logo art. Go check out their podcasts, Dead Ideas and The History of Sex. They are both incredible shows. I hope you all had fun, and remember, the die is mightier than the sword.